And finally, the ending you have no doubt been waiting for with bated breath. Well, your sleepless nights are now officially over. The end of the Tina Davis murder trial now. On a guest at the past, 1892. So Attorney General Pillsbury presented his closing case for an hour and a half on the afternoon of May 3rd and wrapped it up after another two hours on May 4th. The Boston Daily Globe, in its May 4th evening edition, described the weather outside as dark and gloomy and compared it to the activities inside the courthouse, not less cheering than the prospect within. As for the main defendant, The intense mental agony, wrote the paper, which he is suffering, was plainly visible in the face of Trefethen, the deathly pallor of whose countenance was in marked contrast to his appearance when the court adjourned yesterday evening. His eyes appeared sunken and swollen as though he had been weeping. He sat with one foot crossed on the other, as has been his custom, since the trial commenced. Much of what Pillsbury had to say had already been said in the prosecution's opening statement and drilled home by their witnesses. The following are highlights from that closing argument. Pillsbury began by telling the jury that something unusual happened on the Wellington Bridge at 8 o'clock, or about that hour, on the night of December 23, 1891, accentuated by the now infamous scream. It is not to be accounted for by the young people who were out on a lark. It was a scream of fright. A scream as Fitzpatrick describes it, and he may easily have heard it, even at that distance, on a still night, and still more if the wind was favorable heard it, and determined exactly the direction from whence it came. And it must have come from the bridge if it came from that direction. A scream. A scream which, as he describes it, was of a woman. And it was unmistakably the scream of a woman. As of a woman being forced to do something she did not want to do. Put that, gentlemen, with the tracks. Put that with the death that occurred at that spot and time. Do you think that is mere coincidence? Another thing. Whoever knew a suicide to scream as she went to her death? Suicides do not scream. The fatal impulse that hurries a woman to self-destruction seals her lips. She goes staring and swift and silent to the fate which she has prepared for herself. She dies and makes no sign. But if that woman was thrown from that bridge, what is more natural than that she should have uttered the scream? Natural! It is inevitable. A man has planned and prepared himself to throw a woman off that bridge. A woman so light that she could be easily handled from any position of advantage by a man of the most ordinary strength. 
a woman no heavier than a healthy child of 12 years. He makes an appointment to go to drive with her. He's going to Boston or Charlestown to be married, perhaps. We don't know. He has secured her confidence. She is cheerful. She is in the company with the one she loves and the one to whom she desires to be united in marriage. She suspects nothing. She is in his power. He drives down that avenue and drives upon that bridge, taking the sidewalk. He drives along to the channel, which is deep and narrow, which flows beneath the draw and which must be approached and reached before he has reached the place for his crime. He then pretends that they are on the sidewalk by accident and must get off before they cross the draw, as they must, and that, in order to get off the sidewalk, it is necessary to descend from the buggy. He descends. He puts one foot upon the sill beneath that rail and I hope you noticed it, gentlemen, that sill on which a man may stand as firmly as I now stand on this floor. He presses his foot upon the step or the sill of the buggy. He presses himself against the rail, only four feet and three inches high above the sill. The woman rises and he takes her beneath the arms as any man would take a woman of that size out of a carriage, a woman with whom, at least, he was on any intimate terms. As she stands there, gentlemen, the whole weight of her body is above the top of that rail, for the sill of a buggy is two feet and a half at least from the ground, if I am not mistaken. She stands there in such a position and so near that rail that it is not only possible, but easy to send her over it. He takes her beneath the arms, and with one instantaneous impulse, she is over the rail, and with one shriek of agony and terror, as her fate flashes across her brain, she goes down beneath the waters, and the deed is done. It cannot be done. Gentlemen, it has been done. But the waters will not hold that secret. There is no place in this universe where murder can safely hide. Now, gentlemen, when we know that Tina Davis died at that bridge, on that night, and at that time, under circumstances which indicates strongly that some other person or persons had a hand in her death. And when we know that her illicit love was about to bear fruit and that she was the mother of an unborn child, inquiry turns instantly to seek the father of that babe. Who was he? When we have found him, we have found the guilty man. Trefethen became acquainted with Tina Davis as early as 1887. It was at first, without doubt, an acquaintance and a relation of mere business, 
But by 1888, the acquaintance was ripening into intimacy. And in 1889, his attentions to her had become so marked as to attract the notice, not only of her mother, but of her friends. It was in 1889 that he made that declaration in the presence of Mrs. Peake in August. I think 1889. That she was his girl. That he was satisfied with her. And that he had no other. And, said he, Do you suppose if I had another girl, I should be keeping your company as I am? It is no matter, gentlemen, whether there was an engagement of marriage. Doubtless, the exact situation was this. What do such attentions as his mean to an honest, country-bred girl? To be sure, there were no visits between the families, but there need to be none. There were no visits to the theater, but there need to be none. He was visiting her frequently. He was taking her to ride. He had made her at least one present. And what did that mean to her? What does that mean to any such girl as she was, and situated as she was? It means honest attention with a prospect of marriage. There is no doubt but that she so regarded it. There is no doubt but that, as it went on, her mother and her friends so regarded it. There is no doubt whether he so regarded it. And why? Because, gentlemen, he was trifling with her. He was promised in marriage to another. He was playing a double part, the part of a hypocrite. And, as it turned out, the part of a seducer. He was promised in marriage to Rose Lindsay, and she was the object of his affections. And Tina Davis was but the victim of his lust. Now, under those circumstances, he, at least, would equivocate and evade. He would not desire or permit, if he could help it, that any public announcement of a marriage engagement should be made. He held back that relation, if she believed she entertained that relation toward him, from the knowledge of her friends, and he took all the advantage of it. His other relations with her for the purposes and all the purposes for which he was following her. Gentlemen, that is the next step. After an unprincipled man has enlisted the affections of a pure and virtuous young girl. For the gratification of his lust. What is the next step? Tina Davis is not the first girl who has given her virtue where she has given her affection. The next step is that on which Trefethen was bent throughout his relations with this girl. The next step is seduction. Is there any doubt about it in the evidence? He was paying her constant attentions. Nine of the most intimate friends of the family have been brought here to describe them, but they need not have been. 
the evidence of Mrs. Davis and Mrs. Peake was enough. And there is not a word of contradiction. There is evidence that he was paying her attentions, which constantly increased from 1888 down to the 23rd day of December, 1891. There is evidence of ample opportunity for seduction on many occasions. There is evidence that they were alone together more than once, under circumstances of which the seducer would take advantage. There is evidence of acts of intimacy between them, of the closest character, which are even allowed to be seen by any third person more than once. Gentlemen, that is enough. But there is much more. If there could be any doubt upon this evidence, who was the father of Tina Davis's child? All doubt would be settled by that preposterous story, the most astounding statement ever addressed to the ears of a jury, in my hearing, of what she said to him on that ride to Clark's in September. His relations, mind you, were purely business relations. This was a highly moral young man who never had anything to do with Tina Davis except in the purchase and sale of goods, and he took her in his buggy to drive her to Mr. Clark's on an errand of business in September the month after that in which this child must have been begotten. And on that ride, she tells him what? That she was pregnant with child? That she couldn't tell her mother? And that she couldn't tell him who the father was because she had promised not to? Gentlemen, what do you think of a defense which involves such a proposition as that? To whom, of all people in the world, does a woman go when she finds herself in that situation? She goes straight and swift as the arrow from the bow to the partner of her guilt, to him and no other. You are asked to believe that Tina Davis, having had no relations with Trefethen, but business relations, riding out with him on a purely business errand concerning the erection of a building, confided to him the last secret which human power or divine could ever wring from her breast. Gentlemen, that proves two things. If it does not, there is no force in evidence. There is no human judgment left. It proves first that Trefethen knew, almost as soon as she knew it herself. For this ride, mind you, was in September, and she didn't wait to tell him. It proves that he knew her condition, and it proves that every word he has ever said of his relations to her, from that time down to this time, is a lie. But we have still more. Trefethen is in a situation in which his life may depend on showing that some other man has had relations of intimacy with Deltina Davis. 
He has been defended with all the skill and all the eloquence and all of the ingenuity and all of the resources that his council and the government together could furnish. And I can say no more than that. There could be no more. Every foot of territory ever traversed by that girl has been searched. She has been tracked as they track the fox, not only about Charlestown and Everett, but down in Bethel, Maine, where she was born and reared. And all the powers of the defense have not availed to show you, gentlemen, that one living man ever so much as put his hand on Tina Davis, save Trefethen himself. Not one man. And she stands here today as pure before us as on the day when she was born, but for her relations with him, as pure as I trust her ransomed soul is today before her maker. My friend need not disclaim casting aspirations upon her character. He cannot, and he has not. Now, gentlemen, we know who was the father of that child. We know who had placed Deltina Davis in the situation in which we find her. And we know the man who had a motive, and a double motive, being pledged to another in marriage to rid himself at once of Tina Davis and of the fruit of his unholy passion, soon to be a living witness of his guilt. We know when and where she died. We know enough of the circumstances which surrounded her death to see that another hand was in it than her own. We know all her movements on that day and on that fatal night, and we now turn and look for his. We have upon the Trefethen alibi three witnesses. Of all the people in Everett, of all the people in the world who knew James Trefethen, a man who permeates that whole territory daily or weekly, peddling dry goods, I suppose, at every retail show in that part of the country, of all the people to come here and testify to his whereabouts for two hours that night and the two hours within which Deltina Davis met her death, but three. There is no proof. There is no proof of Trefethen's whereabouts that night on which a jury on their oaths and their consciences can rely on so important a question as this may be. There is no proof of Trefethen's whereabouts from these witnesses between about seven o'clock that night and about nine when he turns up at Wemmis's store in Charlestown. And mark the significance of this, gentlemen, for it cannot be overestimated or overstated. He was a man well known in that neighborhood and doubtless in Charlestown and doubtless between Everett and Charlestown. He kept a public shop and he drove a public team. 
Do you believe now, gentlemen? I put it to you candidly and seriously. Do you believe that if Trevithan was engaged during those two hours in any affair which he could afford to have known, no living man, woman, or child could be found who saw him in that interval, save for his mother, her nearest friend, and a Miss Worcester. Now, gentlemen, let us see what we find on looking over this evidence. We find that Deltina Davis died at the Wellington Bridge about 8 o'clock on the night of December 23rd. We find nothing in her previous conduct or her appearance or the circumstances which accompanied her departure that night or the circumstances of her conduct that day or at any other time which independently would lead any man to the supposition that she was about to commit suicide when she left home that night. We find that she was in a situation in which, while it may be said to be a motive to suicide, and by the way, gentlemen, stop and think of that a moment. Did it ever occur to you that very few pregnant women commit suicide because the instinct of motherhood? Is it the instinct of motherhood in their breasts that holds them back? Her situation, I say, was such that while it may be said to furnish a motive for suicide, it furnished a motive for some man to be rid of her and her unborn child. We find that Trefethen was the only man in relations with her, the only man who had ever been in intimate relations with her, that he knew her situation, and it is not to be doubted and will not be doubted that he was the father of that child. We find that he was engaged in marriage to another woman and thus had a double motive to be rid of Tina Davis. We find that on the night of the 23rd of December, Tina Davis went out by appointment to meet him. We find that she was last seen in his team, disappearing in the direction of the Wellington Bridge. We find that it would be difficult, if not impossible, for her to have arrived there by any other means by the time when she must have met her death there. We find tracks on that bridge indicating that a buggy was driven on there for some extraordinary purpose, driven up to the very point at which this girl must have been thrown into the water then turned and driven back toward Medford from whence it came. We find that at the very hour, and almost at the minute, when she went into the water from that bridge, the scream, as of a woman in distress or fright, was heard at precisely that point. We find that Trefethen is not accounted for, is not properly and sufficiently accounted for, between seven and nine o'clock that night, within which time this whole tragedy was enacted. We find that being sent for by Mrs. Davis on the morning of December 24th and charged with the knowledge of Tina's disappearance, he denied all knowledge of it, but asked her not to mention his name, 
or connect his name with her going out the night before. Started for the police station and arrived there five or six hours later. We find him at the police station the middle of that afternoon in a state of great excitement, falsifying as to his whereabouts the night before and suggesting a false reason, a reason which he knew to be false and we now know to be false for Tina's disappearance. We find him inquiring whether Mrs. Davis had not received a letter from Tina and repeating the inquiry. We find him suggesting that she had committed suicide and saying that she had the means to do it. We find him visiting Mrs. Davis with a man, his partner in crime, falsely introduced as a detective at a time and under circumstances which indicate conclusively that his only purpose in that visit must have been to find out what Mrs. Davis knew and what he must prepare to meet. We find that he suppresses the lost letter until Smith discloses it, and even then he gives a false account of it. We find that the lost letter is so much longer than the letter to Mrs. Davis that it would have furnished probably ample means for making the true authorship known. But we find that the lost, a copy of that letter, not in the original handwriting, has been preserved. We find that he had concealed this letter, notwithstanding the exhibition of it to Mrs. Davis was called for by every dictate of humanity first and by every consideration of self-preservation and self-defense next. The exhibition of it not only to Mrs. Davis, but to the police. And we find a letter to Mrs. Davis, supposed to come from Tina, a letter written for the benefit of this man, and with the sole effect, if not the sole purpose, of shielding him from the consequences of this crime. A letter for which he was repeatedly inquiring, a letter which he was undoubtedly surprised that Mrs. Davis had not received, a letter which Deltina Davis could not have mailed, could not have mailed in the place where it must have been mailed if she had committed suicide that night at the time and place where we know she died, a letter which contains, if I am not mistaken, indications that it was not hers and that it was disguised by somebody, and a letter which he not only could have written and mailed, but if he had written and mailed, which he would have written it at the time and mailed it in the place where this letter must have been mailed. You are confronted with these facts. You must look them and every one of them straight in the face. You must consider every one of them by itself. And you must consider them all together. You are on your oaths, and you have a solemn duty to perform. These facts cannot be evaded. They cannot be concealed. The eloquence of counsel cannot blind your eyes to a single one of them, nor turn your attention aside from one of them. Look these facts, gentlemen, in the face, and see if you can reconcile them with Trefethen's innocence of this crime. 
Judge Sherman then went on to explain to the jury their duties and obligations from that point on, advised them on reasonable doubt, burden of proof, and the different degrees of murder. The jury left to deliberate, and just over two hours later, came back with their verdict. Here is a description of that scene from the May 5th issue of the Boston Daily Globe, page 10. James Elbert Trefethen, hold up your right hand. Mr. Foreman, look upon the prisoner. Prisoner, look upon the foreman. Mr. Foreman, what say you as to this defendant, James Elbert Trefethen? Is the prisoner guilty or not guilty? Guilty of murder in the first degree. What say you as to the defendant, William H. Smith, as to this indictment? Is the prisoner guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. The above conclusion in the great murder trial at Cambridge was reached at 6.10 o'clock last night. The jury, upon their second ballot, consigned Trefethen to the gallows and gave Smith liberty. Foreman Woods' replies to the questions of Clerk Heard were spoken in low and trembling voice, but the words fixed the fate of two men. Unmoved, the ill-fated prisoner faced his judges. Not a muscle quivered, not a sigh escaped him. Like the plaster image of a man, he stood within the dock, the convicted murderer of Tina J. Davis. His companion's face was lighted up with radiant hope. He turned and cast a glance joyously at his wife, who sat nearby. Then his hand instinctively sought Trefethen's. The wife who had smiled on him a moment since was weeping now for her brother. And in his rejoicing, he did not forget the convicted relative at his side. The scene in the courtroom was beyond the power of the pen to effectively describe. As if paralyzed by the verdict, ex-Governor Long and Mr. Coggan, the defendant's counsel, stood within the bar, their eyes filled with tears. A ghastly stillness fell upon judges and jurors, and over the multitude of spectators, the solemn silence as of death seemed to prevail. The light of the setting sun came through the arched windows overhead in mellow coloring, but it failed to dispel the black horror of the scene, and breathlessly, with hard-beating hearts, the spectators listened. Clerk heard in measured tones resumed proceedings. Gentlemen of the jury, you will hearken to your verdict as the court has recorded it. The jury upon their oaths do say that the defendant, James Elbert Trefethen, is guilty of murder in the first degree, and as to the defendant, William H. Smith, that the defendant is not guilty. So you say, Mr. Foreman, and so, gentlemen of the jury, 
you all say. The clerk then inquired of Attorney General Pillsbury if there was anything against Smith, and as the former offered no objection to his discharge, Mr. Hurd again addressed the prisoner. William H. Smith, the jurors by their verdict have said that you are not guilty of the offense charged in this indictment, and you, therefore, under the direction of the court, are now discharged. Mr. Sheriff, will you release the prisoner? The officer at the door of the dock therewith threw it open, and with an impulsive hand grasp, the freedman left the murderer and stepped forth into life in liberty. And still Trefethen stood unmoved. His eyes were constantly shifting from the jury box to the bench and back to the bar again where his counsel was. Mr. Long was now mentally active, but it was apparent he was broken down in feelings. Upon request, he was granted until May 28th to file exceptions, and then with a few words to the jury who were discharged, the judge adjourned the court without day. The throng filled very slowly out of the Hall of Justice. A majority of the spectators were women who, from morbid curiosity, paused to catch a glimpse of the convicted man's face. Neither Mr. Long nor Mr. Coggan stopped to converse with him. They hastily gathered up their effects and left, and lawyers and prosecuting officers followed. Their work was done. But there was one who lingered, an old woman of frail bent form, down whose brown and wrinkled cheeks tears were falling. She gave by her presence silent comfort to the man of iron nerve within the dock. She was his mother. Upon her breast and babyhood he had lain. In childhood she had directed his life, and in mature years he had been the comfort and support of her widowhood. In his suppressed anguish and trial, she was at her boy's side, feeble and tottering, but loyal to him, though a convicted murderer. In the front row of the spectator's seats, to the extreme left of the dock, was gathered a family group. Smith and his wife were talking together, while the Lindsays and relatives surrounded them. In her joy over her husband's release, Mrs. Smith did not forget her brother, and as the officers came to remove him from the cage, she whispered a word of courage in his ear and placed her hand upon his shoulder. Trefethen kissed his mother and then held up his hands to be locked with the steel cuffs. Then, with a hasty word of farewell, he was marched out of the courtroom, down the stone stairway to the lower hall and thence out into the open air. It was scarcely a minute's walk across the county grounds to the House of Correction, but in that brief time a varied scene was enacted. The street was crowded with humanity. 
men, women, and children were running hither and thither in front of teams, dodging across lots, and taking the nearest course to the prison entrance. The police and attendants forced a passage through, and without a word being spoken by the multitude, the officers escorted the prisoner within the iron door of the jail at precisely 6.28 o'clock. In the meantime, attended by similar throng, Mr. Smith, in company with Mrs. Trefethen, started to board a horse car for Boston. The writer boarded the horse car, on which Mr. Smith and Trefethen's mother rode to Boston, and was fortunate in securing a seat next to Smith, who received everybody's congratulations with self-possession and withal apparent pleasure. When asked to make a statement for publication in the Globe, he said, I am very thankful for the liberal treatment Trefethen and I have received from the Globe. It is very different from what other papers accorded us. There is very little to say to you now. I am so wrought up over my brother-in-law's conviction. If ever there was an injustice perpetrated in court that ought to meet with popular condemnation, I believe this is it. In the first place, Trefethen is innocent. I know that as well as it is possible to know anything. If the evidence brought against me is a sample of what convicted him, and in the order of things it must be, then the fact of his conviction will rest hard on some people's souls. I know that up to the very minute the verdict was rendered, he believed firmly that a disagreement would be the worst thing he could have had to contend against. It was wonderful what nerve he exhibited at the last when conviction came to him so unexpectedly. Do you think his bravery in not flinching the act of a man who would destroy a girl in the manner claimed by the prosecution? If you knew Trefethen as I do, you would be convinced of his innocence. During the 17 weeks we have been incarcerated, we have occupied nearly adjoining cells and have seen each other every day. During that time, Trefethen was not once cast down or melancholy. We talked little about the case and tried in every way to conform to the rules of the institution. I stood the confinement very well, but could not stand the food. It was unfit to eat. I lived largely on fruit, and though I have gained in flesh, I do not think it is a healthy growth. I do not think I ought to say anything about Trefethen's case until I see his attorneys. If I had not been arrested, I am satisfied the case would have been solved a long time ago. There is big news in it yet, for as God is my judge, I believe the mystery of Tina Davis's death is yet unsolved. Will you proceed with your detective work that was interrupted when you were taken into custody? He was asked. I do not know as yet, was the reply. Do you think Tina Davis committed suicide? Yes, was Smith's reply. I do, and have always thought so. I do not know what I will do this summer. Last year I worked at Hotel Chatham. I probably will not be able to go back there. 
I tell you, it is a very hard thing for a man to be thrown into jail for so long a time. His reputation tarnished and himself made notorious, and then to be launched upon the world, obliged to outlive it all, with no ability to recover for the injury sustained. You can imagine how joyful it was for me to get out of that dock, which opened very easily when the right combination was employed. Poor Trefethen. I pity him, but I don't believe he needs to give up hope yet. What do I think of Mr. Pillsbury? As a lawyer, he is certainly very able. He made a fine argument from his standpoint. I am satisfied. Long and Coggan have done everything in their power for us. I do not think their resources are exhausted yet. Trefethen did not say a word to me after the verdict. We shook hands and that was all. I did not tell you what Mr. Pillsbury said to us in the dock. As he came up, he smiled and asked how we were feeling. And I replied, pretty well, but we'll feel better after the verdict. He said, don't be too sure. And then I added, it won't do you the least good to try and discourage us, for you cannot do it. Then he made some remark about not wishing to do that and went away. I am very sure Mr. Long was much broken down by the verdict. Mrs. Trefethen was weeping under her veil as she sat by Mr. Smith's side during the conversation. When spoken to, she answered feebly, Don't bring me into the newspapers. My burden now is greater than I can bear. The paper went on to interview the foreman of the jury, Elijah Wood. He talked freely with a Globe reporter on the verdict and gave an exhaustive resume of the evidence, ticking up the different points upon which the jury based their verdict and arguing earnestly why such and such a piece of testimony pointed beyond the shadow of a doubt to the guilt of Trefethen. He stated that the most damaging piece of evidence presented was the letter alleged to have been written by Tina Davis, and this, coupled with his actions since her disappearance, indicated his guilt and was mainly instrumental in convincing the jury that he had murdered the girl. When we went into the jury room, he said, we considered the first point of the judge's charge to us, which was as to whether a crime had been committed. You understand that the principal line of the defense was that Tina Davis had committed suicide. After a slight discussion, we took a ballot, which resulted 11 to 1, that a murder had been committed. So an interesting conclusion to a case that had been building up for months and months. As mentioned by Smith in this article, the Boston Daily Globe, which had by far the most coverage of this case, amongst papers I could access anyway, <laughs> in online databases, uh, was more sympathetic to Trefethen and Smith than uh, the other local papers were, which is very interesting. Um, I thought there was some pretty juicy stuff written about this case uh, from the Boston Daily Globe. I can't imagine what the other papers uh, that I was not able to access again had to say about this, but 
I'd be interested in your opinions on this. Do you think Trefethen had anything to do with the murder of Tina Davis? Or was he an innocent victim in this? And did she commit suicide? This ends another episode of A Guest at the Past 1892. Until next time. <laughs>